Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Curious Competitor Podcast. I'm your host today, current New Jersey Devils defenseman, Connor Carrick. Our guest today is Patrick McEwen. Uh, as you know, on this podcast, I, you know, this really is uh, my brainchild. I love to talk about all of the things that I am passionate about. One of those is hockey. Uh, like last week, we were able to have Matt Martin on. Um, and then this conversation kind of falls in the uh, fitness, biohacking, and self-development world. Patrick is a, a world leader in trying to help uh, people understand what happens uh, with the breath in terms of carbon dioxide and oxygen exchange, how to best um, train your CO2 tolerance. We'll, we'll talk about that in this podcast today. And again, any of the techniques that Patrick's talked about, uh, his two books, uh, The Oxygen Advantage and The Breathing Cure, are great ways uh, to gain more information. You can also contact him on Instagram at the Potato Clinic, which uh, the handle we'll put in the show notes here. What I really appreciate about Patrick and our conversation today is he will offer very rudimentary and, and, and beginner sort of insight on how uh, everyone in the world can become better breathers all the way to, you know, some more advanced techniques like the breath holds and things like that. Things that I uh, offer great warning before trying. Uh, but thank you to Patrick for walking us through this, uh, through his expertise today. And thank you for joining us wherever you are in the world. Let's do this. But Patrick, let's start right at the beginning. You know, we breathe uh, sometimes through our mouth, hopefully more often through our nose. I know this is 101, and for anyone that hasn't read The Oxygen Advantage, I read it over uh, uh, COVID quarantine times and found it unbelievably useful given uh, limited access to equipment. Uh, uh, showing people the light of your book has been, I get a lot of younger athletes that, you know, message me, hey, Connor, I'm trying to train. I don't have a ton of equipment. You know, gyms are locked down. What do you think I can start with? And breath work uh, and, and your work is somewhere where I'll, I'll point them because we can get a really tremendous training effect that we we're just talking about a little bit uh, off air without maybe the the outside uh, needed stress that you would think we would need. It, it adds a, a really cool component. So why why nasal breathing in, in general? Yeah, I suppose nasal breathing is just one part of it. And when we think about the functions of the nose versus the mouth, if you were to ask yourself, what does the mouth do in terms of breathing? It does zero, nothing. So the only thing that the mouth does is that air comes in through the mouth and straight into the lungs. But there's actually no function performed by the mouth. It doesn't warm the air. It doesn't regulate the air. It doesn't moisten the air. It doesn't harness nasal nitric oxide. Your mouth is connected with your upper chest. Upper chest and mouth breathing is more likely to kick in a fight or flight response. Your nose is connected with the diaphragm. Nasal breathing increases the pressure of oxygen in the blood by about 10%. This is known since 1988. Nasal breathing also increases, when you do it during physical exercise, it's tougher. And it adds an extra load onto the athlete. And it's, listen, we have to be realistic, Connor. I'm not saying to any professional athlete, switch to nose breathing 100% of the time. But there are times when we want to upregulate the body, when we want to downregulate the body, you know, and it's really the autonomic nervous system. We can really influence this through the breath. And you were talking there a moment ago in terms of it is much more than nasal breathing. It's about looking at an athlete's functional breathing throughout the day. And to give you an example, if you have an athlete who is mouth breathing quite a lot during very light t intensity exercise during a warm up, and if they are mouth breathing during sleep, and if they're walking down the street and their mouth is open, 
how they're breathing during their normal every day is going to impact how they breathe during physical exercise. And the extreme breathlessness that athletes sometimes feel is not because of their necessary, it's like it's physical training does not change your breathing patterns. It's your normal everyday breathing that's going to influence your breathing during physical training. And that's why we need to focus on everyday breathing as well. And it has been overlooked. You know, when you think of all the sports and medicine scientists throughout the world, and there's only one in particular that I'm aware of that has been focusing on nasal breathing during sports in the last five years. And his name is Professor George Dallum. And he's done small studies on it using, say, 10 recreational athletes, getting them to breathe through their nose during all exercise for, for six months, and then measuring how well did they do. And their results after six months was that they were able to achieve 100% work rate intensity with nasal breathing versus mouth, but they had 22% less ventilation. So if you think about, you know, a breathing, if we're overdoing it in terms of the breath, there's an oxygen consumption there. And if we have poor and inefficient breathing, we're wasting energy unnecessarily. And also we're more prone to respiratory muscle fatigue. So, you know, there's an economical saving there that players aren't gassing out too soon. And yes, it is tougher initially, but this is good because this is where the training adaptations take place. Yeah. And, and so the nasal breathing while training is something that I've worked on. I know what is the science behind the repeated sprintability um, nasal breathing? Because this is something that I want to implement even on the ice. I'm sure there hasn't been on ice studies, but it's not apples to oranges it's more apples to apples like there's not a huge difference between sprinting off the ice and, and on the ice what would be sort of a work to rest sort of protocol that you would be able to recommend to somebody uh that is just introducing themselves to this what is what would you consider a decent step one um process yeah, like to improve anaerobic capacity and for the for the sole purpose of improving repeated sprintability what I normally put athletes through is I have them now they're warmed up. So a nice warm up in and out through the nose. We do slow breathing. And then I have them take a normal breath in and out through their nose and pinch their nose and hold. And they have to sprint 40 meters on a breath hold. So they're sprinting without air. And then when they let go, they have a, a 30 second semi-active recovery. So they're walking back for 30 seconds. And then I give a, a five second countdown and they sprint again, 40 meters. And they do five repetitions, typically per set. And we have them do one set per every other day. So in week one, we do a set every second day. And that's a set of five. In week two, I increase it to six reps per set. In week three, I increase it to seven reps per set. And in week four, I increase it to eight reps per set. Now, what is the training effect here? It has been studied with professional rugby union players in Australia using the exhale hold technique, which is exactly the same technique. And these were 21 years of age during competitive season. Their repeated sprints before exhaustion were nine reps. And they divide 21 players into two groups. One group was doing breath holding during the 40 meter sprint, and the other group was doing normal breathing. And after four weeks, the group who was doing breath holding, their repeated sprint ability before exhaustion increased from nine to 14.8 reps. Now the that's group, monstrous. It's monstrous. And we have to bear in mind, these are not recreational athletes. These are professional. Yeah, these are big dogs. These are highly trained rugby players and they're young guys. And it's during professional, you know, com uh, pro competitive season. So 
It's just because this hasn't been tapped into, you know, like people are doing anaerobic training and they're really pushing themselves and it's leading to injury and it's traumatic for the individual. And you don't have to be doing sprint sprints with breath holding to get that true effect. Now, it's a better effect. It's a stronger effect. But we would even do jogging with breath holding. And say, for example, if you have an athlete who's who's injured, you know, they can't train at high intensity, so they have to cut back a little bit. And in order to help maintain their respiratory fitness, we would be doing breath tolling during that time. I broke my leg. I had, a, I had surgery on my ankle two years ago. And I, I remember distinctly we were doing, um, you know, like aerobic rides on a bike with just the upper body. And I remember I'm, I'm not getting the, the heart rate. I'm having a hard time getting the heart rate up high enough because my upper body strength is, is what's fatiguing first, right? Yeah. It's kind of difficult to just, you know, plug and chug on the arms. Like all my lactic threshold abilities in my legs as a skater, you know, my, my yeah. butt and my thighs are all, you know, big and strong. My upper body is not really anything to write home about. And I wish I knew about this. I wish I knew about the intensity because you do, you get this entire body sort of uh, stress effect when mm. you're starting to run out of oxygen. It, you can be, it could be as simple as, you know, I'll do the breath holds, for example, and some of the nasal clearing yeah. when walking my dog and it is extremely stressful. Or I'll, I'll try and see how many uh, stairs I can get up without a lot of physical, physiological stress. Like no one yes. would know if they couldn't see me yeah. plug in my nose that I'm going through something. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and I think that's a good part of it because, you know, the last thing that I want to do is when we're looking at anybody's training regime, we don't want to disrupt it. We don't want to add anything more that the coach has to be thinking about. And all we're doing is say, for example, to give you an example, a typical warm up routine that a player will typically do. It's always very important. We start off with down regulation first with that player. We start off with slow and low breathing during movement. And this mm -hmm. is to help activate the diaphragm, to have a calming effect on the mind, to improve gas exchange from the lungs into the blood, to slightly increase carbon dioxide in the blood. And then we do a couple of easy breath holds to increase blood flow to the brain because we want the player going out relaxed, but we don't want them going out too relaxed. So we yeah. actually relax the player, first of all, to steady any nerves. And this will help to improve focus and to get the player into the zone. And then we do a couple of easy breath holds. And then we will do five strong breath holds. And one part of that is as well during the warm up is to cause the spleen to contract, to release mm -hmm. red blood cells into circulation. And 8% of the blood cells, 8% of our blood is stored inside in the spleen. And the quality of blood inside the spleen is very high. It's 80% is hematocrit. So if you yeah. were to think of typically a male, a male hematocrit is between 40 and 50%. And in this, inside the spleen, it's 80%. And even if you just hold your breath for 30 seconds during light movement, that will cause the spleen to contract. And if you do five breath holds, that's maximum spleen contraction. And it takes between 10 minutes and 60 minutes for the spleen to reabsorb that blood back. So that's improving aerobic capacity. And we do it typically right before the game, but we just give a couple of minutes to allow acidity just to normalize. So the player yeah. isn't going out with, with too, too low blood pH. And then we're, we're doing as well during training as doing these breath holds to force the body into a state of anaerobic glycolysis, much stronger than a sprint. And it's not known where it's improving, but it's taught that it's improving the buffering capacity inside in the muscle compartment. So there's an anaerobic load that we can add, but we can also improve aerobic capacity. And I think there's a psychological thing as well. 
you know, you're pushing the body. As you said, you're going for a walk, you're doing a long breath hold, and you're feeling a fairly intense feeling of breathlessness. And yeah. it takes willpower and determination to get your breathing down to recover there. And, you know, the other thing, I suppose, is that, yeah, it's you could be doing it. Nobody even knows you're doing it. Yeah, I, I um, and when I think of athletically, there's something about the, the big mouth breath, like your eyes are moving. Uh, it's it's very stressful on your nervous system. Very versus, I call it um, when I when I speak with younger athletes, and, and even when I talk to myself at the elite level, pro athletes work very hard. Don't let me get that mm-hmm. confused. But all of their performance is extremely reflexive. Right, so an elite skater is not trying to particularly be fluid in the middle of a game. They just are. It's that easy for them. And you've only got 100% of your brain space, right? So if I'm a player, say for example, who's not a high-end skater, mm-hmm. well, now I've got to spend a good percentage of my brain space to just match speed. All I'm trying to do is just catch speed. I can't worry about details. I don't know where uh, my stick is in relation to theirs. On my angle might not be off. I might not be able to count people off the rush. And very much with this breathing technique, I think that there's such a, uh, like an inner quietness that settles in. And it's kind of like a chicken or the egg where a player, when nervous, will start to breathe improperly. But if you just breathe properly, you can start to feel less nervous. And, you know, I had, uh, I had someone who's kind of a mentor in my life, this uh, um, newly, Bryce Salvador was a captain in the Jersey Devils. Played in the NHL a long time, extremely curious uh, individual, you know, really on the forefront of some of the training techniques that we're talking about, even, you know, 10, 15 years ago when guys were just drinking beers after the game and, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And uh, he had this this phrase where he said, you know, Connor, you can do all the strength work in the summer that you want. You can do all the skill work, but uh, scared is not skilled and scared is not strong. And that's where I think the breathing can have such a compounding effect. It's like this secret x factor that enhances without any real physical stress you're not going to get hurt Mm. you know necessarily from doing a breath hold as long as you're not doing it underwater and stuff i know i've i've read about that but um it really is this amplifier this exponential uh improvement mechanism that can relax somebody and allow them to be in that like that perfect bell curve right you don't want to be asleep but you want to be too excitable yeah you know you kind of want that 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 zen that warrior brain yes to settle in and i found the breath to be a great uh access point for that yeah and it is and like if you think focus and concentration like focus whereby we can have absolutely one point and an undivided attention in where we are at that we can bring a calmness and a stillness to the mind but if you have an athlete who has any sort of predisposition towards a little anxiety or a little bit of panic attack panic disorder that's going to impact their their you know their getting into the zone and through the breath we can help to improve that there's a number of ways that we can help to bring a quietness to the mind one of the best ways that helped me 25 years ago was getting my mouth closed at night for me yeah. that was that was a total game changer i'm not an athlete i was i was in the corporate world my background was economics i was highly stressed i had poor sleep and, you know, you're supposed to go to school, to high school, to university. You're supposed to be able to focus. You're supposed to be able to concentrate physiologically. If you're in a state of poor sleep quality and if your breathing is a little bit faster and a little bit harder, that's going to cause agitation of the mind. You can do all of the mindfulness in the world. 
but we want to improve sleep and we want to improve the, the respiratory function. And I think that's very, very important. You know, nasal breathing typically allows breathing to be slower and more driven by the diaphragm. And it increases carbon dioxide gas during physical exercise. All of these things have a calming effect on the mind. And in 1996, it was published by a paper by Travis and Dolliard. It's been very understudied. They got a group of athletes breathing through their nose during physical exercise, and they measured the EEG um, brain wave mm -hmm. readings. And they were in that flow state. They were in a state of intense alertness and relaxation at the same time. And, you know, this is what's highly prized. And this is what, you know, coaches are often wonder, well, how can we get in that athlete into that, that situation? I can bring myself into it. And, you know, I'm <laughs> no, um, you know, in terms of it with breathing. Yeah, I know a little bit about it, but, you know, anybody can do this. Absolutely anybody can do it. And the time to bring breathing practice in is not just in a game, but it's in your everyday life. And if we yeah. think of the, the mind as that tool, many people, especially the younger generation, they're stuck on mobile phones. They're constantly interrupted by social media alerts. They're worried about how are they doing on social media. They've got emails. They've got text messaging. They've all of these distractions, which are training the brain to be all over the place. When the brain is all over the place, focus and concentration is impacted. And if we want to be able to achieve quality of work, no matter what we are doing, and especially in the athletic world, to be able to refrain from distractions kicking in, that if somebody says the wrong thing to us, that we're dwelling on that. Like that means that the other person has control over my thought processes. I want mm -hmm. to be in control over my own mind, that regardless of what's happening on the outside, that internally, I've got a quietness and I've got that intense alertness. And that focus is very important because you could do all the training in the world, but if your mind is not in it, it's not going to happen. So much of the pregame anxiety has to do with, you know, sort of this future driven thought. Yes. If the breath hold exercise is, it, it brings you immediately into the present. Yes. It is extremely difficult to have outside thoughts when you are starting to have that tension build from the carbon dioxide building up and it, it drags you into the present moment. It, 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 you don't really have a great option. It's, it's very difficult yeah. to worry yes. about anything else. And it's very freeing that way. Yeah, because when you do a breath hold like that and, you know, just before we do, I'd say like if any of the players want to try this, just make sure that you're in pretty good health yeah. and don't do any more than five reps twice a day because there is, there is a lot of diminishing returns here. So I'd say do maximum five repetitions twice per day. And when you're holding your breath, you should always recover in about two to three breaths. So there's really no point in stressing yourself out because we don't want to do extreme. Um, you know, if you hold your breath and you're using pulse oximetry, you, the whole goal is to get your SpO2, which is the saturation of your blood oxygen, your blood oxygen saturation, to get it down between 80 and 90%. And mm -hmm. if you're at about 85, that's severe hypoxia. That's all you want to be achieving. You know, we don't want players going into the 70s. You can get a little bit disoriented. If you go below 60 and 50, you pass out. You can pass out, especially below 50. Now, touch wood, we've never, because we don't do the hyperventilation before breath mm -hmm. tolling. We do it a little bit, but we don't do it during movement. So my point here is, yeah. When you do, the whole ritual for a player would be is to incorporate this into their, their warm up. That 
when you do a breath hold, yes, definitely you're increasing blood flow to the brain because of the increase in carbon dioxide. And I suppose the ironic thing here is that an awful lot of people in the Western world, they feel that if they want to improve blood flow to the brain, they feel that they have to be taking the big breath. And I remember 25, even 30 years ago, I'm not sure, 1996, 25 years ago, I was going to do an exam in my final year in, in um, university. I was as anxious as hell because my mind was all over the place anyway. And if the mind is all over the place anyway, it doesn't take much to throw the mind into turmoil because you yeah. don't have much of a buffer there. So I went for this walk two minutes before the exam and I took these full big breaths because I believe that's what everybody tells me to do. Take a deep breath, take a full breath. And I went into the exam hall. I was totally lightheaded. So you can imagine going in to sit a three hour exam and you're totally spaced out. You're in that state of absolute fight or flight. And this is where there's so much information out there and it's so confusing for the normal individual. We have to bear in mind that carbon dioxide is not just that waste gas that everybody talks about. It is true that we breathe out excess CO2, but we, we need a pressure of carbon dioxide in the lungs of 40 millimeters of mercury. And if it goes below 35 millimeters of mercury, we are going into a state of too low CO2 called hypocapnia. But when we lose too much carbon dioxide, our blood vessels constrict, including blood flow to the brain. And not only do our blood vessels constrict, but hemoglobin, which is the main carrier of oxygen in the blood, it holds on to oxygen more readily. So the harder we breed, the less oxygen that's delivered. Now, that's why the breath hold can help. And if we do it gently and do it within our limits, we can improve blood flow to the brain. And this is a calming effect on the brain, the central nervous system. And, you know, the two things, I suppose, also, if people want to downregulate, always bear in mind, when we breathe in, the inhalation is more under the fight or flight response and the exhalation is more under rest and digest. You can take a fairly fast breath in. It's not going to do a whole lot either way. It's the exhalation that's the key. If you breathe in fast and if you breathe out fast, that's a stressor. So, for example, I'm sure some of your people might be doing something like the Wim Hof technique and they have 30 hyperventilation. Mm -hmm. That's a stressor. And then because you've hyperventilated for 30 breaths, you've blown off so much carbon dioxide. So now when you exhale and hold your breath, you can hold your breath for as long as possible because you don't feel the need to breathe because you've mm -hmm. depleted so much CO2. So again, it's a stressor. Now, when we want to stress the body, you can do fast breathing, but don't disrupt your biochemistry too much. If you want to stress the body by doing fast breathing, what I would say is do 20 breaths instead of the 30 breaths. So do 20 breaths of hard breathing so you can give your respiratory muscles a bit of a workout and then exhale and hold your breath until you feel the first involuntary movement of the diaphragm. So your diaphragm gives a kick. And then do breathe light for three minutes afterwards, because the breathe light will help to restore the, the carbon dioxide that you've lost. So, you know, there's so many people out there doing different breathing techniques and everybody. This isn't a one size fits all. There are some people that need a breathing technique to help down regulate. There's other people who will get benefit from up regulation. And coming back to, you know, say, for example, you have an, an athlete and they're really gassed out and they want to try and recover as quick as they can. Ideally, 
try and switch to nose breathing. It mightn't be possible. And if it's not possible, stay with mouth breathing. But breathe slow and breathe low. Because in terms of gas exchange, if we are breathing fast in upper chest, a lot of the air that we take in doesn't actually get into the small air sacs in the lungs. It stays in the alveoli. So a gas exchange doesn't take place so readily. So in terms of recovery, we want a breathing slow, especially in the exhalation, and we want to be breathing low. And that will help both with recovery from a mental perspective, but also um, physiologically and heart rate as well. It is, it's not so much about the breathing technique that we practice in the studio, but it's also bearing in mind the breathing technique that we are practicing outside of it. And in actual fact, it's not even a breathing technique. It is really just about understanding a little bit more about your own breath and the impact and what, how, can you, how can you change your state you know, by changing your breathing patterns. And the application here, it really does influence all of the major disciplines of medicine and dentistry. And I wrote a paper, an article with um, two ear, nose and throat doctors. We had it published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine there about a month ago. And it was looking at the application of breathing for sleep disorder breathing. So, you know, you think of people with insomnia, people with snoring, people with obstructive sleep apnea. There is a good foundation in terms of teaching functional breathing exercises to help with that. And I remember being a kid growing up, and I'm sure many of the hockey players, you know, having rhinitis is a stuffy nose, and I had asthma as well. And when your nose is stuffy, the one thing that I will always say to people, if you have a stuffy nose, you typically don't just have a stuffy nose. It also impacts your sleep. And you're twice, two to three times more likely to have sleep disorder breathing. And it kind of comes full circle because sometimes we think we should be focusing on, on, you know, how do you implement the zone? Well, then we should be doing mindfulness. And then we have breathing techniques here and we've got sleep here. But in actual fact, they're all interconnected. If your sleep is good, it affects the emotions. If your emotions are off, it affects your sleep. If your breathing is off, it affects the emotions. Everything is interconnected there. And it's important to see that that bi-directional relationship between it. You know, similar to your time, you know, we had the big exam. I had this experience in pro hockey where it was probably four to six weeks. Uh, I had some anxiety about, you know, pre-training camp. Uh, the club had signed a couple of players where I don't think I was going to make the team. And subconsciously, I was, I was really worked up about it. Um, and I would just constantly try to take this max amount of volume again, very similar. Right, I couldn't feel like I could take a deep breath. I couldn't quench that air hunger. I just felt like I was always topping it off and, and it never felt, you know, quite right. And I wish that I knew some of these true uh, down regulating effects. And what I think super cool about this conversation around breath is, Diet is similar, right? Diet can be dogmatic. People recognize foods as good or bad, uh, strictly in black and white, when really these are all just tools in a toolbox. Like uh, ice cream is not a bad option if you are desperately trying to gain weight for whatever that, you know, for physical performance may, reason may be. Very difficult to gain that type of calorie, uh, to take in that kind of uh, calorie uh, number, you know, via broccoli or whatever, right? And so I think it's very cool that we're diversifying our toolbox. And so I want to just create some clearer frameworks for the listener. I want to ask you to touch on the bolt score. So this, that's kind of like our starting point. Um, the, the sprint 
breath holds is kind of, you know, maybe for more for our athletes and people that have a, a closer relationship with discomfort. You know, if I, if I tell most people that they need to go on and uh, stationary bike and do, you know, breath hold uh, sprint work, they're going to look at me like I have 10 heads. So maybe we can introduce some of the like uh, walking uh, patterns you'd recommend uh, for just sort of your average Joe. And then also uh, we touched on earlier how important it is to breathe through the nose uh, at sleep. Some people may not recognize how easy the solution is, um, but if you can just put it in black and white and, and you know, say what you recommend for, for people to achieve a state of nasal breathing while they're at rest. Sure. Uh, the Bolt score is going back for about 40 years and it's measured while you're sitting down and when you're resting. And you're better off being consistent with it. a little bit like measuring your blood pressure. Do it consistently at about the same hour every day or thereabouts. The most important time to measure it would be first thing in the morning. To measure your bolt score, all you, all you need is a, is a timer. And you take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose. And you pinch your nose. And you're timing it in seconds until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. And then you let go and you have a normal breath in. So it's not the length of time of a maximum breath hold. Your breath at the end of the breath hold should be fairly normal. Now, what's the significance of it? There was a paper published by Professor Kyle Kiesel from Evansville University. He looked at 51 subjects. They were 27 years of age. And he looked at their breathing from a biochemical, biomechanical and psychophysiological point of view. And he concluded that an easy way to screen for breathing pattern disorders was the not it was the bolt score. He didn't call it the bolt score. He called it it's the control pause from Buteco. And his conclusion was that if your breath hold time is above 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. So in other words, if you have a person, you know, an athlete especially, you want to get the athlete with a minimum breath hold time of 25 seconds. And I'm talking about a breath hold, again, taking a normal breath in and out through the nose and pinching the nose and holding. And then holding the breath just until they feel the first involuntary movement of the diaphragm or the first stress to breathe. That they can hold a breath 25 seconds until they feel the first sensation to breathe. I've seen Olympic athletes with bolt scores of 12 seconds. I've seen MMA fighters with bolt scores similar. Um, one of our instructors, we have 300 instructors on the ground, Oxygen Advantage. And we have another 400 instructors who are in the health arm, which is Buteco Clinic. So we get a lot of this feedback coming in because they're pretty much around the world. But one of our instructors, Paul Sly, is a chiropractor, Dr. Paul Sly. He works with, with hockey players. He's based in Canada. And he'll often talk about hockey players sitting down. And instead of them recovering in between bouts, they're sitting there they're with their mouths open and they're fast and hard breathing. And the thing about a bolt score is if you have a decent bolt score, you typically will have lighter breathing patterns. And or you can, for example, if you see a, a player and they, they're gassing out too soon, that's not necessarily due to lack of condition. You know, the strength and conditioning coach might be putting it down to poor condition. But if a person is gassing out too soon, despite their normal, regular training, they are still gassing out. We have to ask about their breathing pattern. And if you think about it, between 75 to 80 percent of people prone to anxiety have dysfunctional breathing. They have poor breathing, 30% of the asthma population, and especially even if you had asthma tendencies as a child. So if there's any inflammation in the lungs, that can reduce your bolt score. But it can also mean that there's a tendency 
for that excessive ventilation. And the harder we breed, you know, it's a waste of energy. We're more prone to breathlessness. We've got early muscle fatigue because if we are breathing too hard for a given intensity of physical exercise, we have to think about what is it doing to carbon dioxide. And if carbon dioxide is going too low, blood vessels are constricting. There's what's called a left shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. Not enough oxygen is getting delivered. And even with these athletes, asking them to do some of their training with their mouth closed and exposing them. Because if you go for a run with your mouth closed or even a jog with your mouth closed, you feel an increased sensation of air hunger. And the reason that you feel more air hunger is because your nose is a smaller entry into the body than the mouth. And because the nose is smaller, carbon dioxide cannot leave the body so quickly through the, through the, through the, sorry, through the lungs. And as a result, with nasal breathing, your carbon dioxide in the blood is going to be higher. But this is good because during training, you're exposing your body during physical exercise to a higher partial pressure of carbon dioxide. And this in turn then will reduce the body's sensitivity to it. That in turn then will translate into a higher bolt score. So in other words, it's almost that we're adding an extra load onto breathing by breathing through the nose. And also by nasal breathing, we're adding an extra load onto the diaphragm breathing muscle. And I spoke about, you know, nasal breathing is very important for adding an extra load. And then you can go one step further by using a device such as we use a device here. It's a Roman, it's sports mask. And again, these are tools for helping to stress breathing just a little bit. And we want to stress it that it's a good stress to force the body to make adaptations. And I think there's quite a lot, you know, in terms of, you know, if you were to talk with a strength and conditioning coach, they'll often understand the importance of functional movement patterns. And they'll talk about if an athlete has dysfunctional movement, they're more prone to injury. But does the strength and conditioning coach understand that we spoke about earlier on, the bidirectional relationship of different functions in the body, breathing and moving, movement are inextricably linked. And if breathing is not normal, movement is not normal. And that's the one thing, because the strength and conditioning coach may be focusing on movement, but they're not necessarily focusing on breathing. And you cannot have normal, func normal movement without normal breathing. So that's one aspect of it. Um, you were correct in saying that repeated sprintability is only suitable for people who are already doing physical exercise. But if you have a normal individual and they've pretty good health, you know, if they have a bit of asthma, that's fine. But once they don't, once the female isn't pregnant and they've no heart issues <clears throat> and no serious medical conditions, you can stress your body a little bit and you'll actually feel the adaptations. So you could do this and you could even use it to open up your nose or if you've got a head cold. Take a normal breath in through the nose and out through the nose and pinch the nose and hold. And then the person starts walking with their breath held and go into a light jog and even go into a fast jog. Keep relaxing into the body during the breath hold. And when the air hunger is moderate to strong, let go, but breathe in through your nose and get your breathing recover, recovery within about two to three breaths. Wait a minute and then do it again and do that four or five times. You'll find that you've got increased alertness and concentration because of the improved blood flow to the brain. Your nose is opening up. You're adding an extra load onto the breathing muscles, but it also helps to, you know, open up the airways, the lower airways as well. So an interesting, an interesting exercise that people could bring, you know, you're going for your walk, do a few breath holds. Most certainly go for your walk with your mouth closed. Now, sleeping at night 
was the single biggest biggest reason why I changed my occupation. Back in 1998, I came across it. I was a chronic mouth breeder for years. Fifty up to fifty percent of studied children are persistent mouth breeders. Children who have their mouth open during the formative years, it can affect their craniofacial development. And I know, Connor, you're saying that you're from New York and there are some wonderful orthodontists based in York as well. And his name, he'll kill me now because his name isn't coming into my mind. But there are many orthodontists throughout North America that fully understand this. And they know that if children have their mouth open, that their teeth are more likely to be crooked. Their jaws don't develop well as they should do. So we were, I was the chronic mouth breeder. My jaws are set back. I'd never be an athlete because my mandible is too far set back. Like if we think about the human airway, we have to consider that a good airway is about the size of our thumb. And if, for example, during childhood that the mouth is open and if this, this jaw here, the mandible is set back and the maxilla is set back, the airway is compromised. And the mouth breathing child, if they can develop longer facial structure, high narrow palate, overcrowding of teeth, and more prone to obstructive sleep apnea. And none of this is new. This has been talked about since 1909. I wrote a book recently, it came out about four weeks ago, and I devoted a certain amount of chapters to dentistry and children, because this has been debated in the dental industry for a hundred years. And despite some brilliant orthodontists getting it out there, the dental industry has failed to do so. So it's really amazing. It's often that breath has just been overlooked. And, you know, people say to me, well, sure, it's breathing. Sure, what's that going to do? I say, give it a go. You give that a go. If you've got a stuffy nose, breathe in, breathe out and hold your nose and walk about and see if you can open up your nose. And that's known since 1923. So, you know, again, um, the whole regulation of the central nervous system, we know from the vagus nerve, this nerve that's wandering throughout the human body. And it's, you know, it's, it's innervating most of the major organs, if not all, and it's feeding so much information from the body back to the brain. And the brain, breathing in the brain is in the medulla. So it's right at the back, just the brain stem. And it's a very primitive place because, of course, respiration would have been one of the first functions. Throughout our evolution, whenever we were stressed as human beings, it was always accompanied by faster and upper chest breathing. So stress and faster and upper chest breathing is synonymous. If we're stressed, our breathing becomes fast and upper chest. But if we are breathing fast and upper chest, and if that's our habitual breathing pattern, it feeds into stress. So you were talking about preparing for your six, six weeks, you know, and you felt that, you know, you were concerned that you might not have been chosen, whatever. The, the body doesn't know the difference between a real event and an imagined event. And the anticipation that you think that something is going on, that's a stress that the body is experiencing. And the body is reacting by that fast and um, upper chest breathing. And that information is going via the body back to the brain. And the brain is interpreting it that the body now is in an unsafe environment and relaying signals back to the body. So just as, just as well that fast and upper chest breathing can bring us into stress, we can also trick the brain. That if there is a situation that's not nice, and if we are worried a little bit about something, 
why not just bring some attention from the mind onto our breathing and breathing in and out through the nose and you know if the person was sitting down take a very slow gentle breath in through the nose almost at the breath in is imperceptible and have a really slow and relaxed gentle exhalation because as i said your ability to relax or stress the body is based on the exhalation and if you have a forceful exhalation it's a stressor but if you have a really relaxed and a prolonged exhalation it brings the body into relaxation and the body now that's having that slow and relaxed breathing and especially low breathing through the nose this information is communicated from the body back to the brain and the brain is interpreting that the body is in a totally safe environment because breathing is slow and breathing is low and it's a great hack and you know I have people doing it and I have them breathe under a little bit less air so and your listeners again they can because I think all of this I can talk about breathing you know but the best thing is give this a go practice yeah, it feel and it. just see see does it make a difference All right, listeners of the Curious Competitor podcast, I owe all of you a little bit of bonus outro today. I would say that this was one of the grittier podcasts I've had. We had, uh, when I was recording this, I was at the Four Seasons in uh, Georgetown with the Devils. And uh, I don't know if it was my Wi-Fi or Patrick's or a combination of the two. Still incredible uh, that we can speak transcontinentally uh, across an entire ocean. Uh, I think I just watched with Lexia, This Is Us episode that's some of the software behind uh, FaceTime and, and video chatting. So it's not lost on me how incredible it is. We even had the opportunity to, I mean, think about this whole process. I read Patrick's uh, book, The Oxygen Advantage, uh, was so impressed by uh, just how easily everything would be leveraged in my own life. I, I really appreciate how ex- how accessible breathwork was. I, I appreciated understanding the different tools in the toolbox, just how to play with the oxygen carbon dioxide uh, ratios within the body and then how to use those for what effect we would want, I would want. But with all that said, uh, there were quite a few drops. So I really appreciate Patrick for sticking with uh, you and I for today's podcast. And I want to also, for any further information, again, we can only go so far in an hour and we're limited by my ability to, you know, sort of organize coherently all of Patrick's work. But he, uh, you know, through the, the the power of more extended editing and uh, all the, the time and effort that he's been able to put into writing his books, The Oxygen Advantage is a fantastic resource. That's the one I'm familiar with. The Breathing Cure is just coming out, which I understand. Uh, Colin uh, Steingard, my producer, looked into it as a little bit more of a, of a thicker encyclopedia sort of resource. So um, for no, no matter what your personal health ailment is, I urge you to check out those two uh, resources. Above all, I want everyone to enter into this breathwork realm at their own pace. Uh, if you are concerned with uh, your personal uh, health picture, I suppose, consult your doctor, uh, your physician, your medical team, whoever gives you uh, certified medical advice, not uh, podcast advice. This is all for entertainment purposes only. Uh, and hopefully, just a beginning step zero, let's call it, in the educational process uh, with, with some guidance to point you where to go uh, from zero to one. I also want to talk about next how I leverage some of Patrick's work. So a lot of days I will use the the Bolt score, which I, I forget. Patrick and I rediscussed the, the new name of it. But basically you inhale and exhale 
three times in the morning, uh, just sort of as normal until uh, on the third exhale, you'll fully expel, you know, all the oxygen uh, you sort of can kind of squeeze, get that squeezing element uh, at the bottom of your breath, at which point I'll plug my nose and I won't inhale through my mouth. And I'll use a timer to sort of a uh, timer and honesty. It's really the only two things you need to know or need to have available for you uh, to achieve an accurate bold score. And Patrick touched on it today where even elite athletes will get to 12 seconds. And that first urge to breathe is what we're looking for. That first urge to breathe, uh, when that sets in, and this is why, again, you need the honesty, because this isn't just a max uh, breath hold. That's when you call it. Uh, so he's seen, you know, elite, elite athletes, even in the 10 to 12 second range, where Patrick in his book recommends, you know, really elite carbon dioxide thresholds to be uh, capable of, you know, 40 seconds or even, even longer. I started out probably, I started this out uh, early in quarantine. It was one of the first books I read. I figured I don't have a ton of gym equipment at home, you know, and, you know, you just want to try something different. I've been at this a long time in terms of weight training, uh, body weight training. You know, I, I wanted to see what, you know, I could, I could use with breath. And I knew that some of my, I don't want to call them uh, mentors, but favorite players like, you know, Duncan Keith is famously into uh, the breath. He also uses this, uh, this piece of equipment called Livo 2, which is something I've looked into. I, I've, I wanted to bring that up to Patrick today, but we, we kind of ran out of time and, and internet bandwidth. So anyway, this bold score is something that I'll use as uh, Patrick coins it in the book as sort of a poor man's HRV, and I'll, I'll cross-reference it. I will A, wake up, sort of have an idea how I feel. I will use the, you know, sort of the breath hold uh, score and and... And that will, the higher the score, you know, for me, typically the better my nervous system is recovered. And then I also use an aura ring. So I'll check across that. Uh, all of them sort of have their truths and their fallacies. Uh, but together, I think it gives me a decent 3D picture of how ready I am to train. And, you know, for the most part, I don't necessarily care. It, it doesn't affect what I do or don't do training wise most days. I, as a pro athlete, you kind of have to have that stubborn will muscle, you know, you have to overdevelop it. And, and you, there's an element where your body can tell you what to do versus the athlete myself uh, telling my body what we're going to do that day. But what it really guides is just how dedicated to recovery uh, thereafter that day I am. You know, certain days, as much as I love being an athlete, you know, I am a family man, you know, now I'm a dad you know, dog dad as hoagie cries outside the door as I, as I record this outro. There are other things I want to do. I want to go for dog walks. I want to go down to the beach. I want to go swimming with our family. I want to go golfing with, with, uh, you know, friends and, and family once again, but certain days where the nerves, nervous system's really crashed, um, you know, particularly in the summer, I'll, I'll lay low the rest of the day. And, and this is especially key in season where, you know, performance is really what you're getting. It's, it's your job. It's what you're getting paid to do at this point. Another thing I'll do is uh, the breathe light to breathe right. I love this with Patrick where you sort of uh, cultivate a comfort with discomfort. You breathe purposely to create a sustainable air hunger over the course of three, five, uh, 10, 15 minutes. And this is kind of like a chicken or the egg sort of scenario where when I am calm uh, or, or well recovered physically from, from training, physiologically, this this breathing light pattern will already exist. But if I am overworked or stressed or post uh, training, you know, sometimes the nervous system can be ramped up and therefore the breathing, the breathing is a little bit more laborious, right? Where 
I can be taking in a large volume of air, but I don't feel like I'm getting that air quenched. Uh, I feel like, you know, for whatever reason, I just can't uh, get enough. And that's where, you know, I'll implement some of these uh, lighter breath holds, either on like a dog walk that we talked about in today's podcast, or I'll do the breathe light to, to breathe right. And all of a sudden, because I gave the physiological cue that I am calm, I will become calm, right? So it's, it's kind of a way to not necessarily force the issue, but uh, your, your mind is not the all-knowing being when it comes to uh, our wellness and our body is not the all-knowing being. They, they blend and dance together. And sometimes if you can show the signs on one end uh, that you're calm and recovered, the other end will respond and, and follow suit. So that's something that I really enjoy doing. And what it is, is for me, it's a, it's a results-based uh, technique, right? Like I don't necessarily care how I get to the physiological state I want to get to. I just want to get there. I really appreciated Patrick's insight on the Wim Hof technique because I know Wim as a cultivating, he's a captivating character. Uh, he's someone that, you know, has kind of taken, uh, I know Instagram is kind of where I'd, I'd initially found him uh, by storm and his technique, you know, well, you know, a little bit more violent in, in breathing nature, a little bit more, and I don't want to say demanding, but a little bit more active. It's an interesting technique and, and where Patrick fits is on the other side of the spectrum, right? These are just tools in the toolbox. Do we want to energize and do some emotional work and, and some subconscious work where we are getting this hyperventilation like whim, or do we want to really downregulate and improve our CO2 tolerance and, you know, kind of practice. I, for me, I call it inner chi and, and Patrick's techniques are on the other end. And both, I'm sure both of them, if you've got them in a room, will understand where the other is, is coming from. Another breathwork technique that I'll use, and Avi Greenberg, uh, who I, I want to have on the podcast at some point, he is trained in the oxygen advantage techniques as, as well as uh, a lot of the Wim Hof techniques. Uh, he's guided me a little bit on the importance of the duration of the exhale. And so I have some recordings on my phone that I'll play through. I use these particularly after flights. Um, or post game, there's always sort of this lull, uh, after a game, this, this solo quiet time where I am, I I've just eaten because I've just eaten. It's 1130 at night. I don't exactly feel super ready for bed. I, I want at least five, 10 minutes to sort of digest and lay around and decompress from after the game. And that's where I'll use some of these calming breathing techniques, the, the breathing light to breathe, right? The, the inhale, uh, where the count necessarily doesn't matter. Let's call it a two second count, a 10 second count, but I want to exhale long past that and kind of down regulate my heart rate uh, and let my body know uh, that, Hey, we're calming down for the night and it's time for bed soon. The other side of that coin, uh, energy is a premium in season. Sometimes as a player, you've got to use, I'll use anything to upregulate for a game. If I'm feeling down uh, at, at the the last resort would be a bold cup of coffee at 6:50 p.m. when the game's at seven. Uh, I'll do anything from, you know, some aerobic work just to break a sweat. Sometimes that'll get me going. Some lunge pattern stuff, some bear crawls. If that's not working, I'll up the ante a little bit. Uh, lean on, you know, say like a deadlift, or you know, if we're at home, I'll go shoot pucks and and sort of that sport specific motion will turn my brain on and 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 my body and kind of unite the the flow state. But another great one that's low tax is breath work, right? So, you know, these, the brain will turn on and, and, and sort of give you its attention when it, it, you give it uh, a task that demands such. And breath work is one of those things where 
you can really start to uptick the oxygen and elevate that heart rate with the flip scenario of what I just mentioned, right? Where your inhale is for an extended period of time and you're having a brief, you know, violence or a, um, you know, uh, Wim Hofian style inhale, exhale, uh, ratios and rhythms. And I find both to be fantastic. And then I, I think the next real trick for me and something that I, I haven't necessarily uh, dialed in yet, I'm going to talk to a gentleman I just have gotten to know in the last couple of weeks via my good friend, John Hayden, Peter Russo, is in implementing some of these breathwork cues and focusing cues, flow state cues into my on-ice training. Very common, I understand, in mixed martial arts, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you see it in uh, boxing and things like that, done it at really high levels. Tai Chi, I know, I think Patrick mentions it in the Oxygen Advantage, it's actually one of their grading cues. Basically, you want to create full flow state between mind and body and skill set, whatever it is you're trying to do, in a way that supports the aerobic, anaerobic sort of combination of the sport. So hockey has so many different elements. Uh, you need to skate at a high level. You need to handle a puck at a high level. You need to get outside all of that and be able to read the play at a high level. And uh, ideally, you want to leave any conscious effort to do any of those things and get into that flow state, that unconscious effort where you are just, you are the game. You're no longer playing the game. You become, you know, sort of one with the flow and you end up eventually dictating the flow of the game if you if you can play at a high enough level. So anyway, that is uh, my extended outro for today. I really appreciate uh, all of our listeners for sticking with us. If you have not uh, followed the Curious Competitor uh, Instagram, uh, podcast Instagram, please follow us over there. I'm also, uh, I have a uh, public Facebook now where we're trying to continue to uh, bring highlights of uh, different moments we of, of our beloved guests on the podcast. We will be bringing some of our sponsored uh, materials there as well as we're starting to gain interest there, which has been fun because, you know, this podcast is almost growing uh, to be a year old and, and it's going to be rewarded for uh, my efforts. And again, any sponsor or partner that we introduce is going to be a fully aligned type thing. I just don't do anything half-hearted or half-assed. I'm not, I'm not super interested in becoming a, a Chibo Depot ad man. Uh, but with that said, there are products and services that I know and love that have that have elevated my game, elevated my life. Uh, and if it so works out that, you know, I can enter an agreement um, with them to to bring them to your interest, I'll, I'll do so. So look for that uh, in the in the coming weeks and months. So thank you again to all of our listeners. I look forward to each and every week to doing this with you. I appreciate uh, you sticking with me through the, you know, sort of the newborn phase. It took a little bit of a, a little bit of a hiatus there, but I'm feeling back on my A game. Uh, and I look forward to seeing what content we can bring you uh, next week. Thank you. Have a great week.